Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at many intertwining realizations that are beginning to permeate society, which include, but are not limited to, the dead-end mentality of infinite growth, the uselessness of growth past a certain point for human well-being, and the deepening alienation being felt in response to consumerism in place of community. Clips today are from Double Down News, The Conversation Weekly, The Taxcast, Upstream, Rupture Radio, Politics Theory Other, The David Pakman Show, and with additional members-only clips from Our Changing Climate, Upstream, and Circular Metabolism. Every human being grows. We grow through childhood and then when we hit adulthood we reach a plateau. Our body has a regulating system which stops growth beyond a certain point. Occasionally that system breaks down and a cell begins to multiply and to grow without regulation. And we call that cancer. Cancer is basically infinite growth within a finite living system, which is the human body. That is exactly what is happening with capitalism. Capitalism is dependent on infinite growth within a finite living system, which is the planet. Capitalism is the planet's cancer. And just like cancer in the human body, we have to cut it out. All through my adult life, I've been railing against corporate capitalism and consumer capitalism and crony capitalism, and these are the real problems. And it's taken a long time for the penny to drop. Maybe the problem isn't the kind of capitalism, Maybe the problem is capitalism. So let's look at the planetary disaster. We're losing the soil, we're losing the fresh water, we're losing the insects, we're losing all the other astonishing species that we share this planet with. We're losing the coral reefs, we're losing the rainforests, we're losing everything. And it's all going at a phenomenal rate. What's causing this? The driving force is economic growth. A global economy growing at 3% a year doubles every 24 years, and then it doubles again, and then it doubles again. That's the trajectory we're supposed to be on. That's what governments want, where it just keeps doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling, which would be just fine if the planet was growing at the same rate. But we live on a finite planet, and infinite growth on a finite planet is a recipe for catastrophe. The only way it's been done so far is to use ever-increasing areas of the world as places we effectively steal from. Where the most powerful parts of the world extract materials and cheap labour from the weaker parts of the world. And then ever greater parts of the world have to be used as a dump to dump our waste. Until basically the whole world is an extraction zone and a dump. The whole atmosphere is a dump for carbon dioxide. Our cities are a dump for air pollution. Our Land is a dump for all the junk that we use for a day or two and then get bored of and pass on, which you have to do if economic growth is going to continue. If you've got enough money, you can buy a piece of land. You can buy the right to pollute the atmosphere with your private plane. You can buy a bluefin tuna steak, despite the fact that you're driving a species into extinction. You can buy mahogany furniture whose extraction is causing massive destruction in the Amazon. Money translates into a right to natural wealth. Why? What's a just principle? There isn't one. And yet that unjust assumption is at the heart of capitalism. 
and those who are able to accumulate or inherit or grab enough money can then use that money to grab a huge chunk of our common treasury, our common resources, the stuff we all depend on to survive. And then they act like they have a natural right to do whatever they want with that. If everyone tried to live like the very rich today, we would need multiple planets, five planets, 10 planets, 100 planets, but we've only got one. But if instead you say, let's have luxury, but make it public luxury. Let's have fantastic public swimming pools, brilliant public parks, great tennis courts, great art collections, great museums, great community centers, great youth centers, great playgrounds, all those wonderful things that we try to accumulate for ourselves, but let's do it publicly. Then in creating that space, you don't take space away from other people, you create space for other people. You don't need to multiply those resources again and again and again as everyone tries to do it privately. By doing it publicly, you need far fewer resources. You can have a really rich, fulfilling life with very high standards of human well-being, but without the environmental destruction. And in so doing, we create community where community has been smashed apart by capitalism. I don't think there's another way we're going to get through this century. If we carry on believing that people who are rich today can live like the oligarchs and people who are poor today can live like the rich and everyone can just expand and expand and expand and accumulate and accumulate, which is what capitalism tells us to do. And that we can just keep on multiplying GDP and we can double economic activity every 24 years like we're doing at the moment, then the only possible outcome is catastrophe. We need a whole new economic system. growth intellectuals were the first to highlight the contradictions of the growth model. And I think they've been extremely innovative. Um, they developed a very robust and interesting idea of what a good society should be, almost from a philosophical point of view, more than from an economic point of view. But also at the same time, a weak economic architecture. The early degrowth intellectuals were arguing that we should all live more convivially, that we should all live more frugally, that time should be spent being together, consuming less and get more involved in, in social activities rather than work. Very idyllic, which is extremely alluring to many people. I mean, I think it's beautiful to think that you can sit around a bonfire and, and tell stories and so on and so forth. But definitely... The economic theory behind it, it tends to be weak, right? Lorenzo says part of the problem is how the term degrowth could be perceived by poorer countries, particularly those in Africa. I take you to Malawi and they're going to tell you, oh, we've had degrowth for the past 50 years and we don't live well, you know. Um, how do you go to uh, to Swaziland or to Gabon and argue about negative growth? They're going to tell you, look, you can come here and stay here. We have degrowth every single day. That's why we don't have electricity in our homes. That's why we don't have any food. That's why we don't go to school. That's why we don't have hospitals. So for as long as our brand is degrowth, we're going to be confined to the rich capitals of the North where there, there's been a lot of growth. And now people are rich enough to start fantasizing about a world in which you can leave your car in the parking lot and go for a walk. But those countries that have never seen growth will never embrace degrowth. Another problem, he says, is to do with the word degrowth. I think the concept of degrowth, with all its merits, is still perceived as a negative. Even the name itself, degrowth, it's wrongly perceived as negative growth. I think their brand 
is not capturing what we really need. What we need is another model of growth. It's not negative GDP growth. In recent years, Lorenzo has written a couple of books arguing that the world needs to move away from its obsession with gross domestic product, or GDP, as a way to measure growth. Our economy expands according to GDP even when it produces negatives, when it produces things that harm our economic activities. Um, disasters increase GDP because reconstruction has to happen. Contamination, pollution increases GDP because you have to clean up. Um, every time that something bad happens, somehow GDP moves and, and ticks up. And this is a problem because um, we should actually measure what helps our economy improve, right? GDP was first developed as a way to measure economic growth in the 1930s and 40s in the US. This was in the wake of the Great Depression and in the lead up to World War II. It was adopted more globally in 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference, at which both the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank were founded. It's an indicator of an old type of economic expansion, when destruction of the environment, exploitation of society, and somehow very inefficient industrial processes were the norm. But nowadays, they're no longer the norm. Actually, we consider an economy that is cleaner, an, an economy that is more innovative, an economy that is uh, quicker at doing things with less impact. Actually, we consider it better. And GDP doesn't do that. So GDP likes squandering energy, likes you know wasting energy, because that moves more money for someone. Meanwhile, in poorer countries, Lorenzo says that the pursuit of GDP growth encourages a dependence on a particular model of development. These countries are faced with the contradiction of having to give away something in order to see GDP grow, but they intuitively realize that giving away what they have is not a good idea. And so some of these countries have seen sudden spurs of growth and then followed by destruction and despair every second year. If you look at the African continents, there's been growth and degrowth, growth and degrowth all the time, very destabilizing. Some of these countries don't realize why the fact that they can use their own energy to produce, for instance, clean energy via solar panel and wind turbines on the rooftops and consume their own energy, why that doesn't count towards GDP. But if they sell it to someone else or if they put it together under a huge central plant, then GDP measures that as contributing to growth. It's increasing inequalities. And for many of us, it means more poverty, especially when you consider informal economies. Uh, when in order to create GDP growth, you have to privatize natural resources. This is because the transfer of money from one landowner to another counts towards GDP. You have to enclose public areas. Uh, what happens to the shepherds, you know, people that could access some of these resources openly and now they can't anymore. So you're creating more poverty for them. And in some cases, you're creating a lot of wealth for a few, for a small elite. And that, again, is destabilizing for many of these societies. So for many of us, economic progress and, and a good economy should bring about social and environmental well-being. You know, people should live better. They should live longer. There should be, uh, there should be more social cohesion and the environment should be cleaner. That should be what a good economy does. Paradoxically, we are rewarding countries for doing exactly the opposite via the model of GDP growth. It's about consuming better more than less. You know, when you consume better, you consume less. We waste 30% of our food production. That's the serious inefficiency of the growth model and that no one really wants. So consuming better means having less impact on society and the environment. There have been attempts to develop methodologies that can measure these more positive economic outcomes. The genuine progress indicator does precisely this. So you say, take away money. We don't want to measure how money moves, but we simply want to measure the well-being outcomes. Is a society 
uh, increasing literacy, positive. Is a society increasing um, ecological sustainability, positive. Are natural ecosystems more resilient in a society than in another? That's a positive for society, and so on and so forth. So we're not measuring how money moves, and we're measuring the outcomes. Lorenzo believes that an economic theory focused on well-being is also politically more acceptable than one that appears to advocate for negative growth. You're obviously now a politician. Is it really difficult politically to advocate for the ideas of degrowth? I think it's very hard, and it's politically almost impossible to do so. And and again, I want to underline this. I'm sympathetic to the degrowth argument. Some of the degrowth proponents are very good friends of mine, and I have huge respect for their work. But I think if we want to have success in policy, if we want to have success in the media, if you want to have a concept that travels around the world and is successful not just in Berlin or in London or in New York, but it's successful also in Lusaka, in Angola and, and in Vietnam or anywhere else, you need to have a different message. Degrowth as a concept doesn't travel well in politics. It's often ridiculed in the media. And it's certainly not warming the hearts and minds of people in, as I call, not GDP developed countries. And you do need a new code, a new narrative. And this narrative has to be somehow able to produce excitement in society. And I still think that the concept of well-being is, at the end of the day, what we all want. The degrowth promoters want a well-being economy. the heart of the misunderstandings we have about our economies and ultimately capitalism you know we might not like its excesses but we still believe that only capitalism and higher GDP can deliver better lives I heard you recently demonstrating and it was really fascinating how nations pursuing GDP growth doesn't actually make life any better for ordinary people after a certain point. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, so the key thing to understand is that rich countries don't need more growth to achieve improved social outcomes, okay? Now in poor countries, you know, growth may be necessary because we actually have to increase sovereign economic capacity to produce the things that are necessary for people to live well. In rich countries, that's not an issue. There's, there's a, effectively a surplus and overcapacity problem, right? Overproduction problem. So past a certain point, the correlation between growth and human well-being totally breaks down. And this is very clear in the empirical record. And it should not be surprising. After all, growth means an increase in aggregate commodity production. And there's no reason to believe that an increase in aggregate commodity production should necessarily have a, a positive causal impact on human welfare, right? I mean, this should be clear to any observer. It all depends on what we're producing and how income is distributed, right? So are we producing military hardware or are we producing vaccines, right? Is income distributed to the rich or is it distributed to the working class, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like this is what matters. So yeah, so looking at the USA is a good example. This is the most advanced capitalist economy, and so this is sort of the objective that all capitalist economies are trying to achieve, like that level of commodification. One of the richest countries in the world in terms of GDP per capita. But look, Spain beats the USA in terms of social indicators, including a life expectancy that is five years longer, okay, with 55% less GDP per capita. 
Portugal outperforms the US with 66% less. And these are not just two outliers. There are dozens of similar examples of countries that achieve strong social outcomes that exceed that, that of the US, but with significantly less GDP per capita. So the question is, how, you know, how is this achieved? And the answer is that it's achieved quite simply by distributing income more fairly, producing things that people actually need and not things that are designed solely for elite consumption, and ensuring universal access to high-quality public services. And the evidence is, is clear that when it comes to human well-being and improving social indicators, that's what matters. Fairness, livelihoods, and access to public services. The literature could not be clearer on that. So if we compare the US to Spain or Portugal, it becomes clear that a huge portion of US economic activity, of, of US productive activity, is basically organized around things that do not actually contribute to human well-being at all. Things like production of SUVs, planned obsolescence, you know, military expansion, and so on, right? So we can think of that as basically ecological damage without gain. And, and that's irrational, right? It's like, this is a deeply inefficient, irrational way to run an economy. And it's socially irrational too, in that you know, this chunk of the economy requires an extraordinary amount of human labor. Take fast fashion, for example. Millions of people's lives are poured into extracting and producing and selling clothes that are designed to be used a few times and then discarded, which has an ecological cost, but clearly also a social cost. It's a waste of human lives, a waste of human talent, a waste of, uh, of, hu of humanity in general, I suppose. So, so that's what I mean by a waste, right? A, a significant portion of productive capacity in rich countries is effectively damaged without gain. As a lover of audio, I also love audiobooks. And now, not only do I love the books, but I love the company I buy them from, because Libro has changed the game. Before, I would have ended up buying a book from one of the internet giants because I wouldn't have known where else to go. But then a few years ago, Bookshop.org came along. You may have heard of them. They're a certified B Corp dedicated to funneling profits from online sales of print-on-paper books to local brick-and-mortar bookshops. You tell them who your local bookshop is, and that shop gets a cut of each of your orders. Pretty clever, right? Now, Libro is working in partnership with Bookshop.org and doing the exact same thing, but for audiobooks. It is not an exaggeration to say that I was genuinely excited when I discovered Libro and signed up immediately in a please-take-my-money sort of fashion. And like other online audiobook sellers you may have heard of, owned by a very wealthy person who's notorious for sort of having tried to drive local bookstores out of business, you can sign up for a monthly membership at Libro to get one free audiobook credit each month and a big discount on any other books you purchase. But fear not, no membership is required at all if you prefer one-off purchases. For details and to support this show with any purchase you make, go to bestofleft.com slash Libro. That's bestofleft.com slash L-I-B-R-O. Meanwhile, if books made of trees are actually more your thing, try bestofleft.com slash bookshop. Capitalism is the root of a lot of these issues, and capitalism is built through colonialism. Colonialism serves as a means to export misery from the imperial core to, you know, third world countries and we're past a point of colonization and into the point of imperialism 
where we're at the highest stage of capitalism and that it's expanding into these markets in order to devour as much as it can in order to keep itself going. It's important to conceptualize this in terms of, you know, 500 years ago, there was no white man here. Colonialism wasn't a thing. And we had completely different systems of politics and different social relations. And so the Red Nation attempts to address, you know, imperialism, colonialism, capitalism through a Marxist analysis, but not one that falls prey to the hero worship and book worship that a lot of European Marxists tend towards, or orthodox Marxists, I should say. We instead introduce indigenous praxis into the question because what we have is 500 years of experience and revolutionary resistance against colonization. We're continuing 500 years of indigenous praxis and we're informing it with 150 years of Marxist theory plus indigenous theory. The Red Nation Manifesto has listed a 10-point program that outlines their demands. The points include the end of disciplinary violence against all Native and oppressed peoples, access to appropriate education, health care, social services, employment, and housing, an end to colonialism and capitalism, and the reinstatement of treaty rights. We're on the front lines because without the domination and like stealing of our land, none of this would really be going on. It's a long-lasting domino effect that we're seeing the seeds that were sowed so long ago finally being reaped. And the reason we want a reinstatement of treaty rights is because 83% of biodiversity is protected by indigenous people. And we only have control of 10% of the land on Earth. And most of that land is Bolivia, which is an indigenous country. So a reinstatement of treaty rights represents a reinstatement of protections for the wildlife and ecosystems that are part of those treaties. The indigenous struggle isn't just about indigenous people. Our struggles are your struggles. We want our lands to be protected. Those lands are the lands that feed you. Those lands are the lands that give you water. Those lands, the lands that your everything come from. There is no people without a land. There's a million reasons why the repatriation of native lands and lives and the protection of non-human relatives is important. But a lot of it is that it's just restorative to the environment. The Red Nation has also put out a visionary platform and practical toolkit called the Red Deal, Indigenous Action to Save Our Earth which is a call for climate action that goes beyond the scope of the U.S. colonial state, and I'm reading from the book itself here, is a program for indigenous liberation, life, and land, an affirmation that colonialism and capitalism must be overturned for this planet to be habitable for humans and other-than-human relatives to live dignified lives. The Red Deal is not a response to the Green New Deal or a bargain with the elite and powerful. It's a deal with the humble people of the earth, a pact that we shall strive for peace and justice, and a declaration that movements for justice must come from below and to the left.
politicians can't do what only the mass movements can do. We didn't get the Civil Rights Act because of a politician. You know, we got the Civil Rights Act because people all over the United States acted out in various ways in order to express that they needed change, they wanted change, and it needed to happen today. Instead of, you know, a couple of big protests, a couple of few riots, you know, this was stuff happening one after another after another. People don't realize how quickly these things were going and how organized people were. And we need to get to that point again as the left. And the mass movements of like DAPL, you know, it can't rely on these singular events. It needs to be a constant movement. And needs to be always going, always building and becoming stronger and stronger. We're standing at the construction site of the Dakota Access Pipeline. It looks like there are at least three bulldozers that are, to people's surprise at this moment, uh, actually bulldozing the land. The water protectors at Standing Rock, who are resisting the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL, marked a defining moment of Indigenous resistance and land defense. 2016 has been called the Year of the Water Protector, but it was just part of a much broader movement of Indigenous resistance efforts across North America, including Duda Desert Rock, Una Stoughton Camp, Keystone XL, Idle No More, Trans Mountain, Enbridge Line 3, Save Oak Flat, Bayou Bridge, Kumaye Defense Against the Wall, Winnemucca Camp, and many more. In fact, according to a report titled Indigenous Resistance Against Carbon, published by the Indigenous Environmental Network and Oil Change International, Indigenous resistance alone has stopped or delayed significant levels of greenhouse gas pollution. Men, women, and children, the bulldozers are still going. Indigenous resistance and their victories against uh, fossil fuels kept 6.56 billion metric tons of CO2 from the atmosphere, which is one quarter of the uh, emissions for the U.S. and Canada combined. Alberto Saldamondo is the Indigenous Environmental Network's Council on Climate Change and Indigenous and Human Rights. He's also co-author, along with Dallas Goldtooth, of the Indigenous Resistance Against Carbon Report. Indigenous resistance and victories against oil pipelines, against coal mines, against extraction, actually kept carbon out of the atmosphere so that our victories really contributed to the struggle against climate change. The report that Alberto co-authored examines 26 indigenous frontline struggles against a variety of fossil fuel projects across all stages of the fossil fuel infrastructure development chain over the past decade. The authors of the report, quote, cherish these struggles, not only for their accomplishments, but for the hope they instill in the next seven generations of life, a hope that is based on spiritual practice and deep relationship with the sacredness of Mother Earth. Indigenous peoples, they have a connection to the land. They have a spiritual as well as a material connection to the land. The land provides for them, and they make sure that the land continues to provide for them by seeking an equilibrium with their environment so that their activity does not affect negatively the environment that sustains them. When we talk about natural laws, it's not like creator came down and said, here, you got to do this, or it's not like, like this biblical kind of law, but it's nature's feedback. 
you're harming me. Stop what you're doing, you know, or you're helping me. When you restore the salmon and the game starts coming back and the forest regenerates, really, in relation to the salmon, it's nature's response to us. It, it is a response. It may not be uh, carved in stone, but it's, it's a response nonetheless that we listen to. And I think more and more people are listening to what nature is telling them, that they live in the world, in the world with other beings, with other biodiversity, plants as well. And that in order to sustain ourselves, we have to sustain nature. I think we have to listen to nature and we have to listen to the earth. It's the voice of the earth that teaches us. That's really where those values lie, where that faith lies. So by taking on this new perspective, this new paradigm of sustainability and abandoning the neoliberal view of, uh, of development, we don't want development, we want sustainability. And that's what we're shooting for, I think. In helping uh, frontline communities in their struggle, we're also contributing to their sustainability, their food uh, security, their food sovereignty, their environments, their biodiversity. It's just woven together. All of these things affect each other. So the first thing I think is to emphasize that um, there are just objective limits to the amount of energy you can use and, and material. I mean, they're linked because like, in theory, you know, you can have a thing called solar communism, right? You've this sun, which is just giving out huge amounts of energy if it could be harnessed with solar power and so on. Well, then, okay, the limit is very, very far away. But there isn't enough minerals in the world for us to produce enough solar panels to continue the way that we are going. And um, similarly, in terms of electric cars, there's yeah. a recent report there isn't enough lithium in the world to have just replaced all the private combustion engine cars with electric cars. There are real limits, like, and that doesn't mean, you know, we're not saying the issue is overpopulation or population or any of that stuff. But for example, like there are you know, nine planetary boundaries um, generally accepted by uh, scientists. So it's, it's not just about the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's about ozone depletion. It's about um, nitrogen. It's about um, the quality of the water. It's about phosphorus. There's a whole series of there's nine different planetary boundaries and it's accepted that we've crossed four of the nine you know and just by saying we have democratic public ownership it doesn't get beyond that problem those are actual real material limits so that, that forces a bit of a rethink about like you know the idea of superabundance would have been an idea that like you know within you know a communist classless society we're going to superabundance you need to reconsider what you mean by that it isn't possible to have quantitative superabundance of everything. Everybody can't, in a future social society, everybody can't have an individual electric car. That's just, just, it's not physically possible for us to do that. And to even come close to doing that would require incredible destruction to the earth with all sorts of environmental problems kind of flowing from that. So you need to reimagine what superabundance means in qualitative terms, which is that, you know, a superabundance in terms of free time, a super abundance in terms of leisure activities, super abundance in terms of like a real quality connection that people have with each other, combined with like very high standards of material living. Um, but it can be done in the way of, you know, significant public transport and so on. So just to, to kind of deal with your, your point as well, like 
yeah so like the most hostile people to degrowth in the in terms of the left would be people who could be defined and i think they'd largely accept the definition of eco as eco-modernists they often would also reject wouldn't even in embrace the term eco-socialist they'd say oh well socialism incorporates all of that and effectively we would see those ideas as like a kind of a rehashing of the productivism what's known as prometheanism of some of the socialist movement of the past which is the idea that you can just like produce your way out of crises just produce more and more stuff without any negative impact um what they rely on um and just in a simplistic way they they rely on the idea that stuff that is not currently invented for example you know carbon capture and storage on a massive scale is going to be invented um and that'll mean that we can continue on our current trajectory of growth but just shift to solar panels and and so on and other uh you know more to a higher percentage of of renewable energy or for example shift to nuclear without dealing with all of the complications and dangers that arise from that and we think like just from a rational point of view of humanity to take that gamble of continuing on the road of producing more and more and more in the hope that this magical invention is going to come around the corner in a few years time in time to save us is a very dangerous game and there's a great quote from Engels that i can't remember but basically it's like you know when you do this kind of stuff nature's going to have its revenge on you and so we think like at the center of what an eco-socialist project should look like is restoring the balance and the relationship between humanity and nature like i think you know the concept of the metabolic rift which john bellamy foster kind of rediscovered for marx marx and Engels, the idea of this this rift in the relationship between humanity and nature like that's being caused by capitalism and the nature of production organized by capitalism. We need to overcome that, overcome the alienation of humanity from itself, but also from uh, nature. And that like, you know, all, all these is in a very abstract way, but I, I think like when posed in concrete terms, in terms of people having quality of life, quality relationships, yeah. quality time for those things, that's actually the stuff that most people want to, to have, of course, with a basic standard of material living, which enables them to live in, in comfort. Um, no question about that. Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, they're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look, if all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, 
and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash left. You can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash best of the left. And so the fact is this, right? Like the results of these COP meetings will effectively mean nothing until we have a binding agreement that caps fossil fuel use and scales it down in a, on a scientific schedule in a just and equitable way, right? And for rich countries, that means winding down all fossil fuel use to zero in roughly the next 10 years. I mean, think about the ambition of that, right? That's, that's uh, 10% cuts in fossil fuel use per year. That's what we need to be talking about. And rich countries are just nowhere near that conversation. I mean, no one's talking about a cap on fossil fuel use at all. And so the distance between where we need to be and where these negotiations bring us is monumental. And we should be very concerned about that. It's not okay at this stage in the game, 2021, that there's still this kind of gap. It's, it's a disaster. So we need to be demanding our leaders scale up their ambitions significantly. And that's just the fact. Do you find it at all surprising that, as well as perhaps, you know, the sort of more, more knotty and difficult issue of changing to a different energy system that a lot of the seemingly more low-hanging fruit also isn't addressed i mean you know we still have you know suvs uh, you know running around i mean i you know I'm, I'm talking to you from london and england notoriously has appalling housing stock with badly insulated homes it's st- you know there are still houses with you know, single glass windows and you know obviously this isn't necessarily the biggest stuff but it's it's you know i remember talking to andreas mom and he was talking about how just demoralizing it is the fact that these very minor things are not being done. What, why do you think even that isn't being achieved? Yeah, that's a, it's, it is remarkable. Um, so the SUV thing uh, is like, a, <laughs> is like a, a very obvious issue that needs to be addressed. And this is like the, uh, uh, it's something that degrowth scholars have been pointing out for some time now, right? Like when it comes to the question of energy demand, we, we have to address the question of energy demands. And so that means getting rid of forms of energy demand that are socially unnecessary. And SUVs are just an obvious example of that. Private jets also, things like that, right? And so, I mean, this is very easy, low-hanging fruit and should be obvious. And it, it is demoralizing that it's not. But, but just to revert, I mean, also demoralizing is the fact that, <laughs> that, again, we have these climate summits that never actually cap fossil fuels. Instead, there's this shift in the in the discourse right away from fossil fuels and towards emissions now that might seem sort of fine but it opens the door to all of these net zero pledges which are very sketchy because the assumption in these net zero pledges is basically we're going to keep using fossil fuels and keep emitting carbon through the rest of the century maybe even and just hope that we have technology to sort of pull emissions out of the atmosphere later on and so there's there's lots of room for fudging there when when you talk about emissions instead of fossil fuels. And so this is why I say, as a matter of urgency, we have to be talking about about capping fossil fuels, but also in addition to the demand reduction strategies that are low-hanging fruit. And uh, just going back to to, to COP26 itself, I mean, uh, and in terms of where blame ought to be apportioned, I mean, uh, as you say, there is this clearly this effort to 
pin the blame on on countries in the global south and to sort of position coal as this sort of dirty fuel that is increasingly identified with with poorer countries and not not with the richer nations. But obviously, a country like India, it's it's run by you know a nationalist party. Some would say quasi-fascist in in the case of the BJP. It's extremely friendly to domestic business interests in in India. So do you think there's a danger of positioning things simply in a kind of north-south perpetrators in the north and victims in the south kind of a way? I mean, look, in terms of just the the raw facts of overshoot emissions, okay, so if we look at like countries' contributions to exceeding their fair share of the planetary boundary, which is 350 parts per million concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, it's patently evident that global north countries are overwhelmingly responsible for climate breakdown. So the analysis we published in The Lancet finds that the rich countries of the global north are responsible for 92% of excess emissions. So so that's that's just a fact. <laughs> now, and India, for example, is actually... Uh, way under its fair share limits of emissions. Now, this is not to say that global South countries should not ramp up ambition as much as possible. It's simply to say that without real leadership from the global North here, then it, it, it's not like a meaningful conversation, right? Like we're going to have to see that kind of leadership from the North before we can reasonably expect dramatically increased ambition in the global South and furthermore, that ambition is going, to, is, is going to be contingent on access to fair financing for the transition and also access to, to the, the necessary technologies, which is going to require suspensions on patents for, say, renewable energy technology and also um, you know, cash transfers that will enable renewable energy build out in the global south, et cetera. So we have to have strong commitments on, on that justice dimension before we can expect rapid decarbonization in the south. So... So the answer is both, right? Like we have to recognize the severe inequalities in North-South responsibility. Particularly historically, I suppose, as well as in the contemporary situation, yeah. That's right. But we also have to be calling for, um, at the same time, calling for, for all countries to scale up ambition as much as possible. I mean, that's, that's the situation we're in. GDP was never a very good metric. I mean, one of the things I do in the book is go back to the words of, of, of Robert Kennedy speaking in 1968, so 53 years ago, where actually he was a you know prominent politician prepared to acknowledge the limits of this measure of the GDP and say, look, it measures um, you know everything except that which makes life worthwhile, he said. But it also, it misses out the damage we're causing to the planet. It doesn't include the positive things that people do for free in their own homes. It's just not a very good measure of our well-being. And and so, so in a sense, you know, the answer to your question, well, let's start with some better measures of what really matters. And some of those measures, you know, like our, our our sense of well-being and our sense of purpose and so on could be could be measures which are very unfamiliar to politicians and that's a little bit of a challenge but others of them are really quite simple like you know not measuring for example how much we are degrading our capital assets in the economy itself is something that the gdp is is um, notorious for 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 failing to do and and not putting any sort of sense of cost on um on the damage that we're causing to to the environment and not putting any sort of value on the the work that people do in their own homes all of these things, actually, and there are very, very good uh, attempts to, to improve that measure of the GDP. But you could almost say at this point in time, 
almost any distance towards measuring something more meaningful than the GDP would be a step forwards because it's just not a very good measure of, of progress. It's not a very good measure of human progress in society. So in terms of some of those things, um, the universal basic income movement, which has different names, proposes itself as a way to put value to that which is done in the home, for example, or that which an economy may not currently value. Uh, carbon Carbon taxes would be a way in which we might put a monetary value on the degradation or of, of the environment or the pollution that that's released, et cetera. Is that thinking too small still, or are those good ideas, good steps? No, they, they are very good ideas. In some, you know, in some ways, something like universal basic income is, and I think when you know one of the architects of the universal basic income, Andre Gortz, talking about it first, or, or, or talking about it seriously in the 1960s, he wasn't the first person to talk about it, but but what he sort of said was it's a sort of stealth concept. Mm. Because by changing our relationship to the way that we earn money and by changing our relationship to the way that we work, it enables us to think in massively creative ways about all the valuable things that are happening in society, like, you know, kind of volunteering in our community and the free work that happens in the home and looking after our elderly and looking after our kids. And it allows us to put a value on those things, which in the purely capitalist system in the system of the market if you like just don't have that value on them so i you know i'm in favor of those but i still think i mean to answer your question i would say they are tools in a toolbox um and the the difficulty sometimes in implementing those tools using those tools is that the architects of the system uh don't allow them to be used. So the right. example of ecological taxation, for example, we talked about for decades, and yet it's really hard to implement because of the politics of a growth-based economy. Well, that that's where I was going to go next, which is when we talk about, you know, convincing people, getting people on board, etc. It seems that two, four and six year political terms in in, you know, a variety of different countries are completely mismatched with the timeline and priorities that are required to deal with these issues where a lot of these things are longer term projects. And if your next election is in two years or four or six, it just seems to be fundamentally at odds with the timescales that we're talking about to actually make some of these structural changes. It, it is at odds in, in many ways. And I think, you know, that's not the only thing that's wrong with the political system, because the other thing that's wrong is it becomes, in some sense, because of the way in which political parties become funded, uh, they end up being a sort of apologists for the status quo, of mm. defending invested interests. And that sometimes stands in the way of them. Uh, representing the interests of the poorest in society, the most vulnerable in society, including, of course, the other species we share the planet with. So you, we do have to think much more seriously, I think, about you know, the role of, of governance and the role of power within government and, and think about that, as you're suggesting, in, in, with a much longer term view. And again, there are some interesting initiatives there um, that in Hungary, there's something called the Ombudsman for Future Generations, a kind of representative of, of people who are coming way down the line from the future and are not represented by the democracy of the day. And that's been taken up in Wales, in the UK, um, with a Future Generations Act. 
And there's, so this initiative, in fact, to change the way that government works, to bring the future into our decision making in the present is a really important part of, of thinking about how we address those long term issues. If our only conception of the good life is more is better, but that's one of the conceptions that the degrowth movement is challenging. They are trying to rethink the consumerist conception of the good life in such a way that we might actually understand and realize a way of life that increases our quality of life despite shrinking our material footprints. So one way to understand degrowth is a trade of sorts, less stuff, but more freedom or more community, or more time for ourselves to pursue our private passions, or more connection with nature. Uh, there is a way to move toward a degrowth economy of sufficiency, sustainability, distributive justice, that doesn't mean that we are going to be living uh, in caves with candles. You know, We can live well on less, um, but it does require a rethinking of high-impact cultures of consumption. Sam told me that the biggest challenge to making a shift to degrowth is that the economic systems and social fabric of the world itself are structured towards growth. This attempt to live with less within a growth-orientated system is extremely difficult. In a sense, we are locked in to high-consumption living by virtue of both the political and regulatory structure systems within which we live, and also the infrastructure. So to give some small examples, it's very hard to escape your car if there are no safe bike lanes to get yourself to work, or if there's no public transport that can will take you to work, or if you live so far out because you can only afford a house in the distant suburbs and you know, people will get in their cars and they should get in their cars if that means they can provide for their children. All this means that governments would need to play a crucial role in making large-scale transformation happen. We cannot produce a degrowth society purely through personal action alone. There will need to be a political and a macroeconomic adjustment. We might need policies that lead to resource caps to recognize that we only have a right to a fair share of global resources. We might have reduced working hours. We might need to rethink the way our governments are spending their money to um, pursue a post-growth vision of progress rather than a growth-orientated one. There will be distributive policies that will need to manage any economic contraction in a way that ensures that the poorest kept afloat in any complicated transition. And it will be a complicated transition. It's unlikely to be smooth, there will be severe forces that will resist any degrowth transition, and that will be part of the political challenge. But Sam also pointed out that the change looks different depending on where you are in the world. Nobody in the degrowth movement has ever called on the poorest people in uh, the world to contract their material needs because that's uh, that would be insane and unethical. There are still billions of people around the world who are under-consuming by any humane standard. And so a conception of progress would have to involve lifting those poorest out of material destitution. So there is a significant distributive element to the degrowth position, and that is fundamental. Another common critique of the degrowth movement is that the ideas are unrealistic. But Sam says, 
look at the outcomes of the status quo. Sometimes degrowthers are accused of being utopian in the pejorative sense, in the sense that we're just inventing these theories or visions that sound nice but are unrealistic. I think there is uh, various ways to respond to that utopian critique. Um, on the one hand, uh, I would say that it's not the degrowthers who are being unrealistic, unre but it's the people who think that limitless growth on a finite planet is viable. On the flip side, I think you can almost embrace the charge of utopianism and say that until we have a vision of a just and sustainable society, it's very hard to move human hearts. It's very hard to mobilize communities. So I think it's an important and not at all self-indulgent process to try to imagine not only the problems with the existing society, but also what a coherent alternative would look like, and then to try to think through the process from how do we get from A to B. And that's what the degrowth movement is trying to do. We've just heard clips today, starting with Double Down News explaining that infinite growth on a finite planet is nonsensical. The Conversation Weekly looked at GDP as a terrible measure of human well-being. The tax cast described why growth is not necessary for well-being beyond a certain point. Upstream discussed the Red Deal and tackling environmental degradation from an indigenous perspective. Rupture Radio looked at the dangers of depending on techno-optimism to save us. Politics Theory Other described the insufficient global agreements to reduce emissions and the conflict between the global North and South. The David Pakman Show looked at policies like universal basic income that could realign our thinking on value and the political structures needed to think long term. And The Conversation Weekly described the kind of utopian thinking needed to inspire people to action. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard three bonus clips. The first from Our Changing Climate, looking at the alienation of consumerism as a product of capitalism. Corporations transform these products through marketing from goods that don't need to exist into necessities in order to get us to eat up what they're making. But more consumption and more income does not equate to more happiness. In fact, this phenomenon is called the Easterlin Paradox. Studies reveal that after our basic material needs are met, any additional consumption does little to improve happiness or mental health. Then Upstream debunked some ideas well-meaning people endorse to maintain exploitative colonial economies with the excuse of helping the poor. It's interesting people will say, Global North countries need to keep growing and keep extracting resources from the South so that we can reduce poverty in the Global South. It's basically saying that the plunder of the South, because that's the present arrangement, right? The plunder of cheap resources and labor from the South is necessary in order for the South to develop. It's sort of like this discourse of colonialism is for the good of the colonized, slavery is for the good of the enslaved, etc., etc. We must reject that discourse. And finally, circular metabolism looked at how the pandemic gave us a window into our existential battle against limits and the inner journey we leave behind. One of the most extraordinary things is that we've lost sight of that journey, that inner journey, it seems to me. You know, we've been so focused on that outer journey. We've been so focused on that innovation. We've been so focused on the outer frontier that we've neglected parts of what it is to be human. 
To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email to request a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, if you'll recall, in the last episode, we talked about calling your senators to make sure that an historic affordable housing investment will be included in the budget reconciliation bill now under negotiation. Today, talking about the same bill, we want to emphasize the climate investments that are also under negotiation, with the exception of $7.5 billion for a nationwide network of EV charging stations. Most of the climate parts of the bipartisan infrastructure bill last year were put on hold in order to get Joe Manchin's approval, obviously. Now, Thankfully, up to $550 billion in climate investments are on the table, including tax credits for wind, solar, electric vehicles, and more. Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are in negotiations right now, and maybe Manchin is willing to cut a deal. We just don't know what kind of deal yet. And so right in the thick of it is my old employer, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, also known as CCAN. They're helping to lead the charge to put pressure on the Senate to get the most from this bill, including tax credits ranging from $8,500 to $12,500 for people who buy electric vehicles. And this credit could potentially double the number of people who choose to buy EVs over fossil fuel powered cars. In terms of public transportation investment, that is currently a tenuous issue since there was some transit investment included in the infrastructure bill, but we can and should push for more of that as well. With midterms just a few months away, this really might be our last chance to pass this kind of historic climate investment for a really long time. So use the Call for Climate campaign number to get in touch with your senators. The number is 202-318-1885. That number will ask for your zip code and then immediately direct you to the two senators in your state, first one and then the other, and then connect you with Chuck Schumer's office as well. Again, that Call for Climate number is 202-318-1885. And for more information, on this budget reconciliation bill, you can go to secanactionfund.org or check out the link in the show notes. And finally, as I said, CCAN is helping lead the effort on this legislative push right now, as they have been for almost 20 years of their organization's existence, all from the home base inside the Beltway of Washington, D.C. But they are not funded by corporate profits. You will not be surprised to hear the way other lobbyists are. They are funded in large part by people like you, which is why CCAN is holding a fundraising raffle right now to give away a brand new Rivian electric truck, or if you prefer a Tesla of any model up to a Plaid Model S. Now, I, I do have to say, in light of today's topic, it is important to recognize the slight irony of promoting a new vehicle like this, but as CCAN's executive director has been stressing about the current legislation on the table, it is not perfect. Nothing is perfect. We are in a situation that is imperfect, and we are all trying to make the best with what we have. So in terms of generating much-needed funding for much-needed climate activism and Capitol Hill lobbying, that means attracting donors with relatively climate-friendly prizes, such as a fancy new EV truck. So the driving message of today's show is that a brand new 
electric vehicle is not likely to make you measurably happier or more satisfied as a human being, but you should still support this good cause anyway. So go to secanactionfund.org slash EV dash raffle. Of course, there's a link in the show notes for that and buy your raffle ticket today. There are only 5,500 tickets available, so your odds are actually pretty decent. And don't worry, Secan will be paying the taxes on the car when you win. So again, go to secanactionfund.org slash EV dash raffle or use the link in our show notes. And to have your voice heard in support of the climate legislation under negotiation, call your senators at 202 202- 318-1885. That is going to be it for today. Of course, you can send your comments into me. You can send them by email to j at bestofleft.com or into our voicemail line number, which you should not get confused with the capital switchboard. Our number is 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. And of course, don't forget to join in with our new and growing Best of the Left Discord community where you can discuss other podcasts or this podcast or interesting articles and videos or recommend things to me, which is the other thing I want to encourage you to do. I'm always on the lookout for interesting recommendations. So if you have seen, heard, read, or otherwise experienced something and you think, hmm, Jay would be interested in that. He should check that out. It might give him an idea for a new episode topic. Send those my way. Those will also get popped into the Discord community for community discussion. And of course, links to figure out how to get into the Discord community are also in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.